You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Hello, everybody. Peter Maravillis here. On behalf of City Lights booksellers and publishers and the City Lights Foundation, I'd like to welcome you to another installment of City Lights Live, the virtual component of our event series, where we continue to bring you the authors we know and love through readings, discussions, and forums. Tonight, we are delighted to have with us Priya Gunn's In Conversation with Sarah Thungam Matthews. We are celebrating Priya Gunn's fiction debut. It's called Your Driver is Waiting, and it's published by Doubleday Books. As is customary at the outset of each event, I'd like to acknowledge that we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral grounds of the Ohlone peoples, also known as the San Francisco Bay Area. We would like to take this moment to offer our respect to those who have come before us as stewards of the land. One of the great pleasures of hosting these events is being able to feature exceptional authors at the beginning of their careers. This goes back to Lawrence Ferlinghetti welcoming Allen Ginsberg at the infamous Howl reading. So tonight offers the makings of such a moment as Priya Gunn's prose really shines forth with much dynamism and power. With Your Driver is Waiting, her storytelling mixes dark comedy with an incisive social commentary, producing a kind of a meditation on modern alienation. Her work explores issues of class, race, economic displacement, and the precarious nature of life, while at the same time offering us hope, humor, and a great deal of heart. Priya Guns is an actor and writer previously published in short story anthologies, Gal Dem, Spring Magazine, and in The Guardian. She is a creative writing graduate from Kingston University. Joining her tonight in conversation is Sarah Thungum Matthews. Sarah Thungum Matthews is the author of All This Could Be Different, named the New York Times Editor's Choice, and shortlisted for the National Book Award. She was a Margins Fellow at the Asian American Writers Workshop and a Rona Jaffe Fellow at the Iowa Writers Workshop. Ms. Matthews also received the Best American Short Stories 2020 Award. We're going to begin by having uh, Ms. Guns uh, read from her work. So please join us now in giving a warm welcome to Priya Guns and Sarah Thungam Matthews. Welcome to you both. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for being here. So I'm going to start by reading, I think, the first two chapters. If you're going to be a driver, you'd better hide at least one weapon in your car especially if you're a driver that looks like me. Not because I'm dashing or handsome, but because I am a woman, of course. I think it has something to do with tits, even though not all of us have them. I sort of do, but that's beside the point. I've been driving for rideshare using Appa's old car, whose make I will not disclose. I had a switchblade in the glove compartment, which I normally kept in my back pocket. A tire iron under my seat, pepper spray by my door, and a pair of scissors under the mat by the pedals, taped down to avoid any sliding. In the trunk, there were six bottles of water, a bucket, a bottle of bleach, some rope, a baseball bat, a few rolls of paper towels, a can of antiperspirant, and another spray paint, some condoms, tampons, pads, and diapers. As humans, we have an assortment of bodily fluids, and by then I'd tasted about eight of them. In the bucket, and I didn't like keeping much in it, There was a roll of duct tape because duct tape will do just about anything you want it to. 
I also had some dishcloths, a towel, a crowbar, cleaning products, a toothbrush, baking soda, vinegar, and a squeegee buried under some rags in a corner of the trunk because things got messy. Oh, and there was a pair of black rubber gloves too. These were difficult to find, but I wanted black. All the drivers I've ever met say it's crucial to drive prepared. Go ahead and ask one. If they tell you there's not even one weapon hidden in their car, they're lying. As a driver, you have to protect yourself. Out there in the city, we're on our own. Chapter two. I had only closed my eyes for a second, and in this new place behind my eyelids, my hair was made of peacock feathers and I was riding a silver pony. The world here was simple. Smiley sun, fluffy clouds, grass that was greener than green on all sides. Then my head hit the steering wheel and I woke up to a long annoying honk, reminding me that I was logged into the app on the road and in traffic. The driver behind me in a green hybrid flailed his arms around like he was late for his yearly dick suck. Fucking drive, bitch! All right, all right, good morning to you too, I murmured to myself, smiling at him in my rear view. Of course I'm allowed to nap, maybe not in, stuck in traffic, but if it happens, it happens. I'm sorry. My morning routine was straightforward. I wish I could say I started the day with the four highly effective habits of the wealthy. You know, they wake up at 5 a.m. and go for a walk without a care in the world. They brush their horses in their stable, masturbate at the breakfast bar in the house they own on their private island that they flew to on their personal jet. But I had too much work to do. I had no kids, no pets, just one job and a whole load of responsibilities. I mean, I'd love to wake up earlier and smash out a few sats. Only I get home at two or three some mornings, struggle to sleep most nights, and I'm up again by seven. That's not enough hours to properly rest my muscles, my mind, or even my thoughts. It had only been about 10 minutes since I left the house and my phone was already buzzing. It was Amma. I hit end, as I always did, wishing that sometimes it had more power than just ignoring a call. Again and again, her name flashed on my screen and each time I did the same. Then she sent me the first round of the many messages she will send in a day. 7.57. We need $350 for the electricity bill. What happened to minimum payments? 7.59. Rent. Pay rent or we sleep nowhere. 8 o'clock. Did you pay last month's? 8.03. Garlic causes blood clots. Click here. See, I told you. 8.03. Don't drive like a crazy today. 8.04. Bye. They say mothers are in tune with their children, even if the relationship they have with them is beyond what one might describe as shitty. Amma was sure that she knew me inside and out when she couldn't even remember how to function like she used to. Somehow, she believed life was more draining for her than it was for me. Oh, sorry, I was like, whoa, I'm trying to mute myself. Priya, thank you so much for that beautiful reading. And thanks to all of you who have tuned in um, from wherever you are at whatever time. <laughs> this is a very international um, event. Um, it's what, it was what I've learned so far. Um, Priya is joining, um, joining us from Jordan. I'm in Brooklyn, New York. I um, would love to hear actually 
if you want to send off in the chat about where you're joining us from, um, I'm guessing I'm guessing the West Coast, but you never know, clearly. Um, but yeah, I am so happy to get to talk to you, Priya, about this wonderful book, you know, and um, just the all the interesting and bold and brash things it does. So will you just start us off by telling us what the earliest seed of this book was and what it grew into, because I find that process of like Genesis really interesting, like for my own, for my own novels, like, and for, for the novel that actually made it out into the world, like there's not, there was no, not a straightforward path, you know, from point A to point B. So tell us, if you will, a little bit about this, like this book's journey. Um, definitely. I just want to say, I'm seeing people share in the chat. It's so cool to see where everyone's tuning in from. I see someone from Toronto. Hello. And Bay Area. Where else? I was getting distracted. Long Island, New York. Hello. Hello. Thank you for being here. Um, yeah. So, LA love. <laughs> um, so I started thinking about this specific novel in 2020. We know what was going on in 2020. Um, I had written three manuscripts at the time. And I mean, nothing was, I mean, there was one manuscript that landed me an agent and then he broke up with me in 2020. So my heart was shattered and I'm like, fuck everybody. Like this world sucks. Well, I hate um, this for you. <laughs> and thanks for being right. so honest about the journey. You know, I think a lot of people like want to front like success is microwaved and it never, like it almost never is unless you come from like mad privilege. Exactly. And people see like, oh yeah, you've written a book. Great. Like I want to write a book too. Okay that's fantastic, but are you ready and are you prepared for like the heartbreak that's gonna happen beforehand? Um, but yeah, so it was 2020 and I wanted to write about, I wanted to play with rage, but I also wanted to play with obsession. And I knew because of the manuscripts that I had written before, not that this didn't, I didn't pour my heart and soul into this, I'm not saying that, but I, the manuscripts I had written before were very much connected to my own life. I wanted to have fun. I wanted to write something that felt different. Um, and I was reading for the second time, um, Frantz Fanon's Black Skin, White Mask. And there are, I think six chapters, but there are two chapters. One specifically was the woman of color and the white man. And then there's the white man, no, the, what is the opposite of that? The woman of color and the white man. And then the, man of color and the white woman and I was thinking okay so if Mr. Fanon were to write a chapter I mean he obviously neglected a queer perspective <laughs> he didn't give us that yeah. so what would mm -hmm. it look like if mm -hmm. we were to write a woman of color and a white woman and then for me as a writer of fiction I thought okay so if he were to have written that chapter how could I play with some of his ideas and translate that through fiction like what mm -hmm. would the dynamics between these two characters look like um so you were so for, for the beginning of the novel you were sort of interested in tracking sort of like a like what a certain kind of like racialized like crop you know like like racialized like site of like failure and complication in a relationship might look like but in queerness like, like that exactly. was like sort of ex explicitly important to you from the beginning. Exactly. Like if a woman of color were to be obsessed 
because I like this, I love obsession. I think that we're all very much, we can be fixated and obsessed with different things throughout different periods of our lives. Um, what would that look like? And of course, um, why would there be an obsession? And I mean, I mean, I, for me, I just feel like there's no escaping class in anything. I mean, through my perspective, and of course, that's going to bleed through. Um, so how would that look? And yeah, so I requeried. So I think it's also for me when I was in, you know, writing my first few manuscripts, I always loved listening to writers talk about the process of how did you get to a published manuscript. But I um, requeried my first manuscript um, and my publishers in the UK reached out and they were like, hey, like, let's talk. And I appreciate that. And they invited me to a workshop. And so we started, I started sharing my ideas with them. And one thing led to the next. And we were talking about the film Taxi Driver, which also deals with obsession. Um, and so rewatching the film and Taxi Driver was one of my, or is one of my top six favorite films. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's wonderful. And there's so many different scenes and whatnot that you can be like, hang on, like if someone were to do this today, I mean, could they? Um, <laughs> but I love unpacking films like that and thinking about why certain scenes exist, why a character has said this or that and what it would look like if like, what would it look like if I were to rewrite it? <laughs> For example, this is exactly what I was thinking. Um, yeah, and then thinking about the different beats and whatnot in Taxi Driver and thinking about what is it about Travis Bickle, who is pretty much the first representation of an incel that we've probably seen on film. Um, what is it about him that I, as a viewer, was drawn to? What is it about him that I strangely felt connected with, but then also very repulsed by? Um, and then thinking about Driver's today and what they go through. Um, my partner was a driver for a while and he comes from a family of drivers. So it's something that's been in my life. I mean, the life of drivers and what it's like since um, the overtaking of um, rideshare apps and how that has affected like yellow cabs and whatnot as well. Um, that's been in my life. So thinking about taxi driver, um, unpacking that and then having this background knowledge, it just seemed like, you know what, this this would be very interesting. And then going back to that obsession and rage and translating Frantz Fernand into, you know, his ideas potentially through fiction. This is basically how this novel came about. That's rad. Um, Damani, your protagonist is a rideshare driver. I'm so curious to hear if you feel like this is something you have thoughts on what the figure of the driver, whether that's, you know, the, the taxi driver, the rideshare driver, the hired driver for a fancy person, what you think the figure of the driver represents um, in like society or literature, like what that role affords you as a writer? Uh, for me personally, I mean, I'll get to that, but I think the, the vehicle, like her actual car, was also quite symbolic in that using her car and her together gave me the opportunity to put her in this bubble or put her in, I don't want to say a confine, but it almost allowed me to give readers a microscopic reading of her life. Yeah, and then for so much opportunity for characterization. It's just like, like a close up, you know? Mm -hmm. um, 
And then for Domini herself, I wanted, I don't know if this is going to answer your question, but for me, she is like everyone. She's your working class person. She's someone who we see, we come in contact with a hundred times in a day, but how often do we get to know about her life? We know her, you know, and she might be, I really loved um, Kayla article in the auto straddle on how she reviewed my novel and the mention of the white lotus for instance and when she said oh um priya i'm talking about myself here priya writes about characters who would be side characters in these shows and i mean that's my world those when we watch television when we watch films mm -hmm. most of the time side characters are my friends they're my family and so it just seemed like something so natural. I'm not going to write about somebody, for me at least, in my experiences, who works as a, I don't freaking know, who, I don't know. I'm going to write about what I know. You're not going to try to write about the CEO of, of Uber or Rideshare? No, right? if I were, if I were to write from the perspective of the CEO, he, I mean, that would also be really fucking fun. And it would be very twisted and also very dark. But no, I want to show people, um, yeah, I want to show people something that I know and make them think more about the people they come in contact with every single fucking day. <laughs> so, I love that. yeah. I love that. Um, Your Driver is Waiting has an epigraph um, by a, a Shivanandan. Will you read it to us and then tell us a little bit about mm -hmm. Shivanandan and what he means to you and who he was for? Because you know, I know something about his work, but my experience is that like he's he's more known in the UK and in Lanka than in the US. Yeah. Um, okay. If those who have do not give, those who haven't must take. Um <laughs> Yeah, I'm just thinking about the context of that. And it sounds a lot more intense when it's just that standalone um, mm -hmm. sentence there. But right before writing this, I had, and I think a lot of writers do this. I think we like to have affirmations or whatnot on the walls before we do anything, right? Um, so I had a few before writing this. That's almost like my pump up. Like, this is the direction. This is my inspiration. I do not want to forget what is important to me. Um, Steven and then. Uh, so he left Sri Lanka during the riots and he moved to the UK and he walked into more riots. And for him, this was a very interesting experience because it was like, hey, wait a minute, like we're, I've moved to the West. I thought it wasn't supposed to be like this. And he saw the racial disruption. Um, and not only that, he saw how class was used to divide racial groups. Um, and so what he did was he was a writer and an activist and he worked to bring communities together to make, he wrote like pamphlets and articles and the way that he wrote them was so that the person who works at the factory or the person who works at the shop and whatnot, taxi drivers, whoever could understand. And that's not to say that working class people don't read, but I mean, when you are working, you don't have much time. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So he would make complicated issues or things that are made to seem or sound complicated, concise, and, you know, easily digestible, like, okay, yeah, of course, that's what's going on. Sometimes you hear people talking academic sometimes, and it's just like, dude, like, just tell us this 
fucking shit in two two sentences. It's not that complicated. You're overcomplicating something that we all know. Um, and so for him writing, it was very important as a writer to write so that the people you are writing for and about can access one, not just in terms of how they can, how that literature or whatnot is available, but also in terms of it fitting into their lives. Um, yeah, and he did incredible work. Um, there is a, it still remains the Institute of Race Relations. They do great work on digging through different racial and class issues in the UK. Um, and he was the director of that. He founded a journal called the Race and Class, which also is still operating. Um, and they again do excellent work. He was someone who I think we should speak more of um, because of the impact and the power of his work. It's just really inspiring. Like it might sound dated reading, like for example, I'm just thinking of an essay and he just kind of goes through factory movements and acts of resistance that happened in the 60s in the UK factories. But it's like reading it now is really inspiring mm -hmm. to know how people came together regardless of how they were racialized. Um, and back then in the UK, black was a political color. If you were black, it's because you had a particular politics. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so he was a very interesting person. And I'm very inspired by him. Yeah, no, I mean, he was so ahead of his time. And yeah. I appreciated the choice to ground your novel right from the get-go in work from like work and words from an activist right as well as you know who's also a writer also a novelist um I'm curious what your thinking has been you know and whether it's evolved or what have you but just like you know your driver is waiting is like a fun sexy juicy book it's also really committed to an intelligent an angry look at the systems that entrap us, right? Um, or entrap so many of us and grind us down. I'm curious about how you thought as you wrote your way through this book about political awareness and about radicalism, which are not the exact same thing, right? Like how did you, how did you want to walk the lines you wanted to walk as you wrote this book? Okay, so let me try to break this question down in my brain. Um, in terms of political awareness and radicalism, this is an, an uh, interesting question for me because I was doing my first year of my PhD studies, which I will be dropping out of officially very soon. Um, and it was on, <laughs> thank you. It was on um, Sivanandan's work, but also I was interested in answering the question of what is radical literature. Mm -hmm. And so during this time for me, I was really trying to define for myself or understand what is radicalism and how has the term radical and radicalism been co-opted? How has it been used um, to, how has it been stigmatized? Because when we heard radical before, perhaps in the 60s and whatnot, it was like, oh yeah, it was Malcolm X. It was, I mean, it wasn't Martin at that time, but you know, it was people who were standing up for their rights and going against the status quo. And then again, thinking about what that looks like in fiction. Um, political awareness and radicalism, I think the novel shows kind of Jolene is on the side of political awareness and what that means to be politically engaged. And I've played with the idea of radicalism through Domini and also her friends. 
um, because I think for me in my politics, this is also where you have people who are kind of sitting on the fence, but they're allies. But no, they're not. We're not on the fence. We're doing stuff. No, you're fucking on the fence. Um, and what does it mean to actually take a stance? What does it mean to actually do something? And then if you are doing something, are you then deemed a radical? How much do you have to do to disrupt mm. before you're called a radical and whatnot? Um, and then what else did you ask me? I mean, you answered my question, really. I mean, okay. I, a large part of it. I mean, I think that I was just interested in like how, like, you know, I keep politics and leftism in mind when I write my not like write my work my novels or short stories um I have worked in politics I've worked as an organizer but I also have find that fiction is its own complicated space um yeah a lot of fiction does not respond well to and I'm not talking about markets I'm not talking about readers I'm talking about the work itself and the energy it holds in my experience it does not always respond well to um you know the demands like a novel is like I guess what I'm trying to say is like a novel is not always going to be responsive to the same demands one makes of a manifesto as just like one example mm-hmm. right around like and it's not going to be interpreted the same mm-hmm. yeah and so I was just curious about yeah the, the the question was general for me which is like how did you approach the question of politicization or um like trying to write you know, a radical novel and, and, and you answered it in, in my eyes. Um, I, yeah, I would love to, for you to tell, um, you know, the audience, any, anything that like you feel like you can share without spoilers about like the protests in, in the novel and about uh, doo-wop. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So again, I was planning this novel in 2020 and for myself, and I know a lot of people, yeah, we were on the streets. But I think it's fair to say that sometimes when you are out demonstrating or marching or whatnot, it's fair to say that there are moments where you're just like, wait a minute, like, am I doing any, is this amounting to anything? Um, and w- so it, saying- feel free to pass on this quick interjection. Where were you in 2020? Because you, you've moved around a lot and you travel around yeah. a lot. And I, I think that 2020 was this global phenomenon, but also with tremendous regional variations. So I'm just yeah. curious. Only if you feel so, like. No, absolutely. I started 2020 in Beirut, Lebanon. Okay. Um, and I was living there at the time for about two and a half years. And I've answered this. I shared this once with one interviewer and I haven't shared it again, but a lot of this novel, visually, the city is inspired by what I saw in Beirut during the demonstrations in 2018. Mm. Um, and it was an uprising and it was very inspiring and very uplifting to see. But even in this beautiful mix of people coming together to fight against the the state and the government at the time, um, there was still a lot of injustices. It was like, who was allowed in these spaces of protest? Migrant workers, I mean, they were reporting or they had said that when they would go to certain protests, some women were told, um, oh, what are you doing here? This is not your fight. This, you shouldn't be here. And racism mm-hmm. is, a, is a huge issue there as well as it is anywhere. But um, so I started off in Lebanon and Beirut, and then I was in the UK. And then by the end, I was in Toronto. Okay. Yeah. Um, Thank you for telling us. 
Anyway, c- continue. Yeah. I'm sorry for interjecting. <laughs> when worries. you said that you were inspired by 2020, I just wanted to kind of ground all of us in mm. like the actuality of what that meant. And sometimes I think even before 2020, but in 2020, like it was enraging to see like, it, I mean, in one in one sense, it was wonderful. Like, oh, suddenly loads of people fucking give a shit about what's happening. But this has always been the case. Why does it take a nine minute video of somebody dying in front of our faces for us to wake up when it happens every day? It's happening right now. It's terrible. Um, so it's infuriating. And it was infuriating. Um, so this idea also of who's going to these protests and why is it now so fashionable? Why is it now okay for certain groups to be out on the streets and, you know, past a certain time, it's called a riot. Um, and even in my time of existence and going to these spaces, I think also as a creative, you're naturally just an observer, just kind of watching and taking in like, who's here? What's going on? Who's taking photos? What are the photos and who are they of what, that I'm seeing on Instagram? Um, you know, and again, I, I'm all for people learning and growing um, and it's okay to suddenly care about something, that's fine. But how long is this going to last? So yeah, I wanted to depict all of that, but also I don't think it's fair to not offer insight or not play with the idea of what an alternative could look like. Mm. Um, so that is where doo-wop came in and doo-wop is this space that I'm sure exists, but I would like to see more of um, It is kind of, a space that I imagined. I move around a lot. And so sometimes it's hard to feel, I don't want to say a sense of belonging, but to feel like if people ask me, where's your favorite place to write? It changes all the time. Or where do you and your friends hang out? I'm like, what friends? I don't have a group of friends anywhere. It's different people in different places. And if I'm lucky, there can be a group of us somewhere. So playing with this and also going back to that theme of alienation and loneliness, um, I really wanted to, yeah, write what I want to see and give people also the opportunity to reimagine and imagine what this could be like and what it could look like. Um, it's essentially this wonderful anarchist space that people go to learn and help each other and um, support each other. It's a community within a city that is fucking crumbling. I hope I can swear. I'm swearing a lot. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect you're fine. Um, yeah. but, it, but Peter will tell us. Um, yeah, he said, he said it's all good. Um, but yeah, I, I too swear a lot from a lifetime of being like socialized to be like very, you know, very obedient. Um, mm, good girl. Like, like growing up in deep patriarchy. Um, what surprised you? when you wrote this novel? What surprised me, and if there's any writers here, maybe this will mean more to you. Um, what surprised me is how much of myself I would feel like after finishing it. How much of, like, I mean, Domini helped me understand my queerness as well. I, this was, I wasn't, I didn't really come out to my parents or my family. Um, I was in a film and that was a queer film and that was out they saw that last year and that was that was a lot for everyone 
yeah, that was intense. But this is my baby. I wrote this, you know, and having knowing that my brother has now read it, knowing that my sister has read it. My parents probably won't because they can't. Um, even though I have an audiobook, I'm just like, no, Amma, <laughs> no one must allow you to listen to this. It's gonna be too much for us. And no, I'm not. I don't have the time for group therapy. But um, <laughs> um, the way that I, they have NDAs, they should have the option of like DNRs, like do not read for brown parents. <laughs> exactly. But then all these aunties are like, oh yeah, yeah, I got Priya's book, and I'm like, for fuck's sake, like please, because now it's like they're gonna sit with this knowledge of me, and my mom's just gonna be like, and that doesn't feel nice. So when I see her, I'm gonna probably go through every chapter. Yeah. But, I also, you know, I will say that there's a difference between buying the book which is lovely. We see it as community love and support and reading the book. And sometimes they're reading, sometimes the aunties are reading the book and sometimes it like sits on the shelf. Right. But like, this you know, it's like, like, you know, yeah, we, we, we like, hope for the best, whatever it is. Exactly. I feel like, I feel like I was thinking about it. I'm like, they'll probably make it to about the third, fourth, fifth chapter. And then it might just be too much. It'll be like, you know what, Priya. Okay. We're just going to keep it on the shelf kind of thing. Um, But yeah, I was really surprised with how much of myself I would feel because writing and I guess the desire to be read and then dealing with the rejections, it's almost like you are being, there's something wrong with you. You know it. No, there's not. You know, you know, it's the industry and whatnot. It's all fucked up, but it does something to somebody or to, to a writer or to an artist when you're not able to share your work. And once you are able to, and you're like, holy shit, people are saying, this is great. This is wonderful. I don't, I don't know if it's necessarily, oh yes, for me personally, I needed the validation, but I don't, I don't, I don't know if it's about validation or if it's just about having the opportunity um, to kind of feel like, you know what, you're, you're okay. You're not your your quirkiness your whatever has happened to you in your life that has made you who you are like it's all right you're a good girl it's cool um yeah I don't think I think I need some more time to reflect on what I, I mean by how writing this book and the process of it has brought me closer to myself and mm-hmm. giving me more of an understanding of myself yeah. but yeah maybe in three months I'll be able to articulate that with more depth that makes perfect sense. Um, I have a couple more questions and then I'm going to open it up to the audience. All you beautiful people um, who are watching, um, one, please take a look at, you know, the links City Lights has been posting. And I think y'all know this, but I'm just going to say it anyway. Like books are one of the more fragile forms of media we have. And but partly because they're like, like expensive, like for working people, um, but also because like they're like they represent an investment of time beyond like watching a TikTok. So if you read this book and it means something to you, um, books move through word of mouth. Tell people in your life, get someone, you know, get it for someone um, when you know you're holiday shopping or what have you. So that's just sort of a, a general, like general plug for your driver is waiting, but also for other books that mean something to you that are tell coming. all your rich uncles. Basically. <laughs> yeah, 
exactly. Um, <laughs> alert, alert the rich uncles. Um, so yeah, and also um, think about a question if you have a question for Priya. Um, I am curious, um, Priya, about um, what advice you would give to young writers, young artists, um, young people who are politicized and angry, um, you know, and maybe like, I'm interested in the answers to any or all, but maybe, maybe the, maybe I'm most interested in like what advice you'd give to young writers, like the young, the younger version of you. Mm -hmm. um, if you feel I mean, sometimes for me, the younger version of me, I would say that burning feeling you have to like pour your heart and soul out, like dig deeper into that and keep going. Like that feeling exists for a reason. Um, to the politicized writer who's very angry, push the boundary, like just keep trying. I mean, don't hold back. And I think for me, what something that I find interesting is how can we talk about politics? How can we talk about big issues? And when I say politics, I mean, it's not necessarily a capital P. I mean, everything is political. Our engagements with everyone, our engagements with the land, it's all political. How can we engage with bigger themes without sounding didactic or polemic or in your face? Um, I mean, the mainstream has tried and has bamboozled us. How do we bamboozle them? How do we make them, you know, consume something without realizing that actually, you know, you're being indoctrinated? <laughs> um, I'm kind of joking, but I'm not. Uh, yeah, play with that. Like, push the boundary in terms of your creativity and how you can play with storytelling. Um, that works for people who don't think like you. You know, it's not just about, oh yeah, everyone has to think this way. No, I think it's about getting us to question and getting us to understand what it means to be a human being, but not in so much as just empathizing with a group of people you normally don't engage with, but then having perhaps the reader feel compelled to actually act on that empathy, to, to, mm. I mean, sometimes I think like, oh man, this is a big ask. I'm like, yeah, this book, or a book or a work can inspire some sort of change, perhaps. And other days I'm like, oh my God, like how? But I think that, I think that I want to say today, this morning, because <laughs> it's the morning here, I want to say that I do think it's possible. Like I listen to, or I consume literature, or there might be a bit of an essay written by whoever, or like, Rage Against the Machine, Bob Dylan, like there are works of art and even visual art that I will turn to when I'm not feeling, you know, like myself or I need that pump up. I always call it my pump up. Um, yeah, and they inspire, like even when people, before people go marching, they listen to songs, they listen to like people, everyone has a role and no matter what it is you do, even like as an artist, no matter what your medium is, you can do something towards some sort of greater good yeah no I even if it's just making someone feel seen you know all of that matters yeah absolutely and you know my feeling I agree with like so much of what you said I really appreciate it you're sort of careful and like direct framing around 
like like a warning against a tendency sometimes like preaching only to the choir to like sort of like preaching to the people who are already in the room who believe all the same things as you already um and yeah I mean I think that so much like I think all con all culture with longevity has its mm. art that like supports its longevity right and so um I think in order for us to like build like a more just like more like radicalism friendly culture you need you need the art you know and like in order to sustain it and for me I think you know one of the reasons one of the many reasons why I sort of like shifted towards culture work towards art making um was this realization that it was reading Toni Morrison in my teens it was reading Arundhati Roy um you know like that informed decades later like a decade plus later what I believed and was working on and that's a really powerful like that's a really powerful thing too right mm -hmm. um, to I, add to that also to be able to do that with like a brush of lightness you mm -hmm. know because sometimes it's like I want to watch something and I'm like oh yeah it deals with race it deals with class but it feels so heavy totally. and when you're already dealing with those issues you want an escape so how can you work with these different themes if you will that are just so natural and part of our life but also make it entertaining and light where it's an escapism as totally. well I think all of this for me is very interesting and I like to play with these ideas and questions love that um beautiful people in the zoom room with us um if you have questions for Priya I would love to hear them see them just yeah post in the chat and I will read things out. While people are putting together their questions, Priya, I'm curious, you know, you've, you've been on the press junket for this book. Um, so many places have responded to it with such warmth and interest. Um, you interview well, you know, I'm curious though, whether there's something, whether it's a topic or topics that you that you would love to be asked about more when it comes to this book, when it comes to like writing or what have you? Or do you feel like the people who are in conversation with your book, who are interviewing you sort of like touch on the things you want them to touch on? So far, I feel like that's been the case. Um, I think I also need time to just reflect and process everything and be like, okay, what do I want to speak more of? Um, yes. <laughs> Sorry, I can see the question. So, so um, Sun slash Neha asked, have you always been a writer slash artist slash creator? And I know the simple answer is yes, but actually I would love if you told um, us about the all, all the stuff you do. Absolutely. So someone asked me what did I do first or what do I feel is my favorite between writing and acting and I was thinking about it and I definitely had my acting experience first as a queer kid in a very conservative family I was always pretending I was lying about everything you know like everything it was just it was just so natural to just lie about you know what are you doing or I mean in the beginning it was I was more rebellious in the sense of my resistance was obvious I don't want to wear that dress I don't want to go to this auntie's house I don't like this uncle 
blah, 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 before you're silenced and told, no, you have to, <laughs> right? Mm. Um, and then writing, I remember the first time I wrote a poem, I must have been eight or nine, and I was just watching these kids. They were the kids, I don't want to say, um, I don't want to give too much away. <laughs> my brother and my cousins, and there were kids in our neighborhood. Everyone was together, and they were playing, and I was watching, and I was like, I fucking hate them. I hate everyone. And I had a tennis ball in my hand, and I wrote this poem about how much I can't stand anyone. Um, and I mean, I was fine right after I wrote it. I went and I played, but yeah, right. <laughs> um, I just feel like I was also the middle child, but I, my grandmother was an English teacher and I spent a lot of time with her. Like my, my childhood memories are with her bringing, like, I feel like she raised me in many ways. Um, and she instilled in me the importance of writing. And so when I felt something and I felt a lot, I would write about it. Mm. Um, so in that sense, yes, my earliest memories of myself have been someone who would play pretend, would talk to myself. Like there's this very strange and odd kid, like a cat, I don't know, like hiding and watching people and writing notes and shit. Um, but then I actually, when I, I didn't want to go to university, but one of my teachers sat me down and he was like, yeah, you should. I've always wanted to write. I wanted to be an author since I was seven. Um, I wanted to act as well, but I just thought that it would be impossible. Um, and I remember, like, I mean, I studied geography. I was a geography teacher. And in between breaks, I would write. And because of the lack of time, I would write songs. I would write poems. I did some spoken word here and there. I performed my music. Um, because writing a novel takes a lot of time. Um, but it is something that I always wanted to do. Um, and then acting, I got into because... I wanted to be better at dialogue. So I was like, okay, I have some time and acting training, this course was gifted to me. So I was like, okay, I'll go. Um, and I loved it. I, I did take acting in high school and I loved it as well. But again, I, it never crossed my mind that I could actually do it. Um, because I wasn't, I didn't come from a wealthy background and like, how am I gonna make my money? Um, mm -hmm. And that was something I had to think of way too early in my life. At like 15, I was giving resumes everywhere, hoping like, you know, to help my family. But yeah, so I was taking this class that I wanted to be better at writing dialogue. And then I was like, okay, let's do acting. I had an agent for a bit. And yeah, so I've always kind of created for my own sanity and for understanding myself. And I think, I don't know if this is 100% true, but I feel like the queer folks that I have in my life, like they're creative as fuck because you need an outlet to express so much that you are not always able to express with your family or your friends. Even there was a huge, I mean, even in growing up in the 90s and the 2000s, um, even when I was living in a house share in London in 2010, some of the people in the house flat were you know, homophobic with some of the things they shared. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I love that. Glenn asked whether now or in the viscerally re real near future setting that Domini moves through at times of renewed hope, what is your driver waiting for? <laughs> um, so this question has been asked and probably by the same person. Um, your driver is waiting 
for change is waiting for justice. I volunteer for a driver's union and my specific drivers are waiting for me to write letters. And I'll tell you, unions can write letters, MPs can write letters to Uber and any other rideshare. And it's very, you wait ages to get a response for any sort of change. But I think this question goes beyond um, just what a rider is waiting for. And what I like to think I show in the book is that a lot of people, all of us, were waiting for actual change. We're wait, waiting for, um, I mean, I want to say revolution. And what that is and what that can be is up to us as people to decide, right? Um, so, yeah, Domini is waiting for some change and some monies. <laughs> um, do we have other questions from the audience? Um, Mel, Mel asked, can you talk about how you wrote the end? Hmm. Um, okay. So in the initial planning, before I actually mapped out the novel, I want, like, I mean, it was a dark ending invol involving Domini and her mom, and it was just grim. Um, and I... I shared that with my editor and they were also like, well, like, you want people to leave on that note? And I was like, no, but I just had to share that. Um, I wanted to write an ending that was somewhat hopeful, but also, again, gave readers the opportunity to sort of wonder for themselves. OK, wait a minute. What, what just happened? What is, what is Domini going to do? Um, yeah, I wanted, and I don't even know if I have the answer. Someone asked me, like, what does she do to Jolene? And I don't want to give any spoilers away because I don't know if the people in the room have read the book or not. But, um, yeah, I wanted people to wonder um, and question Dominique's, or force them to question her development and her growth as a character. Um, and yeah, I would never write a sequel to this book. There will not be such a thing. But I did ask myself, okay, Priya, if there was, what would the first chapter look like? Um, and I had different ideas. So yeah, to answer the question, I don't know specifically what, can you talk about how you wrote the ending? Okay, cool, thank you. Um, I wanted it to be something you could think about. I love that. Um, any more questions, keep them coming. And in the meantime, I'm curious, Priya, like, what do you hope for yourself now that your first book is out as a writer? Um, I am very keen to start my second novel. I also want to play more with, I mean, while... I mean, during the process of publication, I was working on a screenplay. I want to go back to that. I just, I mean, I don't know if anything will come of that, but I think it's important to act, always actively engage with your craft. And for me, uh, like experimenting and trying different things. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I'm, I started writing a, a short film like two days ago. Um, yeah. Yeah. I just want to have fun with different other types of um, storytelling. That's amazing. So you're you're looking onward already. Um, any other questions from the audience? Um, 
Y'all, this was such a pleasure. I want to thank City Lights and all of you, and most of all, Priya, for sharing this wonderful work with us and taking the time to talk to us about it. And I think there's a request to illustrate illustrate your next cover. I mean, this is this is pretty good. This is it's a lot to look up to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is such a cool cover too. I mean, I always love when like the designers set it up so that when it's faced out on a shelf, people will like gravitate to it like a magnet, which is what this mm. cover does. Thank you both for an awesome discussion and, and much respect. Priya Guns, congratulations on your new book. And Sarah, thank you so much for doing the honors. And, and, and can I say that hearing A. Sivanandan's name evoked was worth the price of admission tonight? I just do not hear that very often. And that made me very happy is just, thank you, very awesome. And together with so many other insights. Uh, of course, many thanks to all of you in the audience from all around the country and the world for joining us as well. As I mentioned, we have posted links in the chat with which you may purchase books. Of course, if you're in the hood, please do come on down and pay us a visit. We're located in San Francisco's historic North Beach District. We're open seven days a week, Monday through Thursday, 11 to 8, and Friday through Sunday, 11 to 9. We are slowly getting back to pre-pandemic hours. Who knows? We might even go up to midnight again. I'd also want to point out that City Lights is celebrating its 70th anniversary in 2023. We're going to be featuring a special calendar of events beginning in May and running through to the end of the year. This is going to include live in-store events as well as online. We're going to be featuring poetry readings, historic tours, panel discussions, talks, much, much more. So keep an eye on our events calendar for pending announcements. Tonight's event has been made possible by support from the City Lights Foundation, continuing the legacy of our founder, the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti, through public events like this one, our publishing program, and educational outreach, all dedicated to sustaining a vibrant community of readers, writers, and independent thinkers. So take care, everyone. Thank you all so much. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.